0: Look, if you are persecuted, if you are labeled, if you are named or blacklisted, or you lose your job, or you are canceled,
1: that's part of the plan. Welcome to the ACC podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacorteschristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together.
0: It's nice to be here with you guys this morning. I, um, my family and I went on a little vacation this last week in Idaho and we had a great time. Um, It was really rejuvenating and refreshing. And then I got back, and this week was like, okay, I feel ready and restored to dive in. What am I preaching on this week? And I open it up, and it's like two chapters of death and destruction. (laughs) Seriously, I think this is like the bloodiest part of the whole Bible, pretty sure. Um, And you know, uh, a a couple weeks ago, someone came into the church and just out of the blue and said they wanted to talk to a pastor and so I went out and chatted with this individual and uh, the nature of the conversation was something like and I'm not sure totally what they were getting at but, but basically said well, I'll just tell you straight up I'm not a believer in any kind of God or anything like that but and then he says back when the Jesuits came and occupied Peru and some of the Mayan culture and whatnot in South America, they wiped a bunch of them out and exterminated their culture. Did they go to hell? (laughs) And that was the question. So where should we start? Um, We had a pretty good conversation. Uh... But what's behind that question, I I think, is kind of a running um, rhetoric that is pretty true, and and that is that religion um, is assumed today to be the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, so, you know, John Lennon, no religion too. Imagine all the people, you know, living life in peace and so on. If we could just get rid of religion then we wouldn't have anyone telling each other how they should live and you wouldn't have these ideologies and you'd get rid of most of the world's problems and bloodshed and so on. Now, before we react negatively to that, there is a lot of truth to that. Because if you think about it, if you believe that you have the truth and then that belief enables you to look across the lines and say, they don't have the truth, it's easy to then take the assumption that there is something better about me than about that person over there. And if I can say that there's something better about me than that person over there, then it becomes easier for me to assume things about that person or to label that person, to judge that person, which then gives way to being able to dehumanize that person. And if I can dehumanize that person, if I can say all those people on that side of the political aisle or all those people um, you know, who are savages in this country or whatever, if we can label them if we, can, if we can dehumanize them into a, a term, you know, that's less than human, we find the means to treat them as less than human. We begin, that opens the door to violence and bloodshed and so on. And so the fear, especially when looking at a chapter or two chapters like this in Joshua, is... Um, there's this revulsion to religious fundamentalism. And we don't like that idea of fundamentalism um, because it's bad. Or, as Kathy Keller put it, well, that depends on your fundamental. What is the fundamental that defines your fundamentalism? And I'm going to park that right there for a bit we're going to come back to it as we look at these two chapters um, because we're going to look at a section of the story that speeds up all of a sudden It just races through the conquest of Canaan. We've been going through that part of Joshua, we've walked through Jericho, we've walked through their failure and then their success in the battle of Ai and then the episode with the Gibeonites and what happened last week, Mark got us into chapter 10 as the southern nations rallied against the Gibeonites and all these stories are are moving sort of methodically through at, at a good pace that's like paying attention to details. And then all of a sudden, everything speeds up, and all of a sudden they're just jumping from one city to the next, one king to the next, and you know, capturing, putting to the sword, striking them dead, utterly destroying. You know, they take the plunder for themselves, move to the next one, same thing again and again until they get to the end of chapter seven or eleven, and um, that's the end. The conquest is over. And so let me just give it as an overview of what actually happens, as Mark started off, us off last week. Um, After Ai, the neighbors, the Gibeonites, defected from the rest of the nations and joined with Joshua in Israel. There was some trouble that went along with that, but that's the baseline of the story. In response, a coalition of five kings representing the southern cities of Canaan respond in fear by rallying together to attack the Gibeonites. And if you remember, Mark's approach last week was to contrast the response of the Gibeonites versus those other kings. And he said there are two responses to the fear of the Lord or the revelation of who God is. One is to harden against him or to what? Does anyone remember what it was? To endure in yielding to God. Yielding to God sounds like a passive event. But what he showed is that it actually takes continual, ongoing endurance. And that's what we're going to see in this section is persistent, ongoing obedience. They're like walking in lockstep with God. So the Gibeonites, they call for help. Save us from the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country. Joshua marches through the night, ascending up to surprise attack the kings and their armies Uh, there's a lot of details at this point that we might come back to a bit but the kings and their armies are defeated and that leaves the cities that they belong to in the south open and exposed so one by one systematically Joshua and the Israelites go from city to city capturing it um, destroying, defeating anyone who resists and laying siege to it death and destruction, bloodshed taking it all Um, next, the kings in the north do the same thing. It's like a repeat episode, except they rally together a great army, a horde, it says, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And that's interesting because that's language that's borrowed from what God told to Abraham that your people will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, right? And so they rally together this great army to attack Israel, but in a similar fashion, Israel surprises them. God gives them a spirit of panic. They flee. God delivers them over to their hands. He defeats their armies and their kings, leaving the northern cities open. And Israel goes and wipes up, mops up the cities to the north. And that's the story. And so as I'm looking at it this week, I'm going, okay, what's the message here? What's the message? And what we're going to see is that the story depends on your mindset when you're reading it. I think we get sidetracked by the the things that are hot buttons in our culture, our present time, conquest, death, and so on. And we look at it as, as a historical account. The point is to just tell us what they did. What else is there? But as you look at the patterns that are set up in these two chapters, chapter 10 and 11, you recognize that the author is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us what it means to walk in total obedience to God. And that is what struck me this week because I found myself convicted. I found myself convicted. And so what we're going to find in this, and I'm going to read the summary of these two chapters. And in this summary, we'll find most of the key themes that keep repeating themselves. And What this is about is that this is what it looks like to follow God in obedience. So we're going to see the totality of obedience. We'll see the substance of obedience. We'll see the means of victory. And we'll see a glimpse into the true enemy. Okay? The totality of obedience, the substance of obedience, the means of victory, and the true enemy. So... Let's read uh, chapter 11, verse 15 and following. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land. It's going to go on and give some descriptions of all the borders and the boundaries. Verse 17, second half says, And he captured all their kings, and he struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron from Debir from Enab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them in destruction to destruction with all their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of, of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some of them remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Would you just pray with me again? Lord, this is a a fundamentally difficult section because... Uh, for us, it strikes us at a number of levels. But God, I just pray, Lord, that you would challenge us here, challenge our own assumptions, our own sense of cultural superiority. Um, and Lord, I just there's a pendulum here. On the one hand, people have used these passages for ethnic cleansing and conquests and annihilation based on religion. On the other hand, the other pendulum, people take this part of the Bible and they write it off and they say, this is the part that doesn't belong because it doesn't match up to who Jesus is or who God is. And I just pray, Lord, that you would, comp- you would clearly communicate truth to us. I feel um, a bit jumbled up today with all the content here, and I just pray that your word would speak clearly through it. So I, I need you, God. I need you to speak to us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, total obedience. What does that look like? And what you have here is this rapid succession of the Israelites, and it's like they are now in the zone. Okay? They've, they've learned some things. They've gone through Jericho. They were tested at Jericho. I want to give you this whole land, but don't take any of the plunder here for yourselves. It's, it's mine. And, of course, one Israelite and his family disobey that. They learn from their mistake. They go arrogantly into battle. They don't consult the Lord. They decide on their own strategy. They're defeated. They come back. They humble themselves. They fix the problem. They repent. And then they have victory. Then the Gibeonites happen. They're not ready for that. There's a deception. But they tr- it reveals a few things about the Israelites. They're still not fully trusting in God, they trust what their eyes see. They don't consult the Lord. That leads to some division and disunity. But now by the time we get through chapter 11, we see passages that say things like, there was not a word uttered against Joshua. They're they're going in full-on unity. And they're working in lockstep, obedience, trust in God. You know, if you've been paying attention to the Olympics, uh, Simone Biles was the gymnast who everyone called the goat, right? The greatest of all time. And there's a lot of pressure to wear that mantle on you as you go into an event, and true to form, she she wasn't in her game. Things weren't working out, and she dropped out. And what one of the things she said, I'm sure there's a number of reasons. I can't imagine the pressure that would be on someone in that situation. But one of the things she said was just like, my head was not there. I could not get in the game, and so for my own safety and for the sake of my team, I, I pulled out. Um, I was in swimming through high school. Um, that was the last time my hair was actually this short. Um, And I I remember that feeling. There are times when you're just locked in, you're in the zone, you're on the blocks, the thing goes off, your muscles react, you go, you feel your body, it feels right in the water, you're moving, you're streamlined, everything's right. And there's other times where you're like, you feel odd, you feel different, you feel floppy, you just feel weary or tired. and, And things, the whole swim is like a struggle. You just don't feel right. Your head's not in the game. And it's like Israel finally is like, they're in step with what they were meant to do here, with what Moses told them they were going to do and how it was going to work. And they're actually realizing that when we trust God and we follow Him and we do what He says to do, whoa, He follows through. He fights for us. Things work and they're just humming along. They are clipping. And I was really challenged by this one because I was struck by how serious God is about His enemies. And how casual I have been about his call for his church to extensively and utterly destroy spiritual strongholds and enemies. Not physical enemies, the way he had worked through Joshua. And we talked through that when we talked about our hot button issues sermon on this chapter, on Joshua 6, about the nature of conquest. We did a whole sermon on that, and that's important because if you don't have the right context for understanding this part of the Bible, you will get it totally wrong, okay? You need to understand the backdrop behind this. Yet, even though through Jesus the nature of our battle is different, the weapons are different, our enemies are different, they are still enemies, and we, I think, in the West are really casual about enemies, and that's what convicted me this week. God still calls His church to have a no, um, a zero tolerance policy to the spiritual enemies that are destroying lives and communities in our world, and I'll get more into that in a bit. I don't think I have that all figured out for myself, what that looks like or what's going to change exactly. But we do get this portrait here of what obedience looks like. And for one, it starts with faith. Over and over again, if you read through chapters 10 and 11, it starts with God saying, Do not fear, I have given your enemies into your hands. Do not fear. Believe what Moses said. Believe who you are. Believe. It starts with faith. If it doesn't start with faith, you'll lose. Because it is is absolutely essential to believe. And I think that's why Joshua and the Israelites were kind of like children growing up through experiences with Jericho and Ai. They had to get that place where they really believed God when he said, I've got this. I've given them into your hands. Go and do it. It took a while to get there. But if you don't believe that, if you don't trust and you take things into your own hands, you won't succeed. And the point of that is that as we grow in trusting God more, God entrusts us with more. As we continually step out in trust, God entrusts us with more. We watch in this section, one of my commentaries pointed out that Joshua begins to be gradually exalted throughout this passage. It becomes less about Israel, and, and the focus is less and less even about what God is doing and more and more about what Joshua does and how Joshua led them and what Joshua did. And there's a really interesting section that Mark brought us through briefly last week, and I'm going to dive into it a little more. It's that part where the sun and the moon stand still for a day. And we go, why is that there? What's that about? What's that all about? It says, At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. Now, hold on just a second. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites are, sometimes it's a specific people group, sometimes it's a blanket term for all the people in the hill country, which includes those, those spiritual giant clan people who are the Anakim, the Anakites, who are, they exist in all-out defiance against God. But Amorite means mountain people, or renowned, and it also is translated as a sayer, or, or one who speaks boastfully. Amorite's bring up the connotation of a fame seeker or someone who glories in human greatness. So it's like the Tower of Babel. This is a people determined to ascend to the heavens and make a name for themselves. And that's why they're mentioned here. Because these are people who think highly and climb high in their own efforts and strength. And it says, Joshua spoke to the Lord. And that word for spoke is unique Because it's the only time that it is ever used of a person speaking to God. It is always used, other than this time, of God commanding the people. Or Moses commanding the people. And it's as if it's saying that Joshua told God what to do. Which is problematic, at least, right? But it goes on to even say... No one before or ever since, no time before or ever since has God heeded the voice of a man, only now. What's going on here? So Joshua spoke to God in that time, and then he said, In the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon." And then the sun stood still. Now whatever happened there, solar eclipse, I don't know, you know, people have all kinds of theories, I don't know. But what you seem to see is Joshua increasing in dominion, at least symbolically to the extent of what everyone else was trying to climb to. Deuteronomy 4.19, Moses says, Beware not to lift your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars. And then he correlates that with all the hosts of heaven, spiritual beings, other gods and be drawn away and worship them and serve them those which the lord your god has allotted to all the nations all the peoples under the heavens so the picture at least i don't know all that's going on here but it seems like what's happening is god is granting joshua a level of authority as he walks in step in obedience with god he increases in dominion to the point where he's even given a measure of control or dominion over the sun and the moon like they serve him instead of Israel falling into temptation and serving them like their neighbors do as opposed to the Anakites or the Amorites who climb up the mountains trying to ascend to this godlike status but instead are being brought low right so this is what you see There's like a role reversal. God seems to be doing the fighting, throwing hailstones on the enemies while Joshua takes the helm with the sun and the moon. God exalts obedient servants and he demolishes the self-exalted. God exalts obedient servants and he demolishes the self-exalted. And now I want to make a note here. I think it's wrong to assume that if you obey God, He's going to give you some godlike status and you can start controlling the stars. Okay, I don't think that's the message here. But Watchman Nee wrote um, a commentary on the Book of Ephesians, and it's called "Sit, Walk, Stand," and it shows how this message, this progression, is still very true for us. How it's important that we start with faith. Through Christ, Ephesians begins by saying that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing and we are exalted with Jesus. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms, far above all rulers and authorities. And if you believe that, if you sit there, if you rest there, if you understand that, then you can, chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received, of this calling You'll be clipping along like Israel. Steadfast obedience, moving, humming, streamlined, right? So that you can, what? Chapter 6, take your stand against the enemy and his schemes. In summary, as people grow in service and obedience to God, God increases their dominion. So that was one. Total obedience. And what it looks like. Two, we looked at the substance. We're talking about the substance of obedience. And part of the substance of obedience, what does obedience look like? It looks like warfare. Okay, I mean, there's lots of ways that we can say we're obeying the Lord. There's a lot of things that, are, that Jesus says in the sermon, sermon on the Mount that are obedience to God. But one of the things obedience means is warfare. okay. He captured all their kings. He struck them with the sword. He put them to death. They took all their cities in battle. It's the Lord who threw the southern kings into a panic before Israel. It's the Lord that gave the northern kings into the hand of Israel, but it's Israel who struck them with a great blow. Again and again, Joshua captures, strikes, devotes to destruction, leaves none remaining. Although we do know that they're using a hyperbole language there, because there were some remaining. And that is admittedly disturbing for us to read that and to think about that. And yet, as I found myself trying to discern the meaning, what struck me was that the reason for all that repetition is to show the tenacity and the zeal of Joshua and Israel in their obedience to God and to show that obedience results in the destruction of God's enemies, and we are not called to anything less today. So is that still the case today? Is that true? Today we talk about spiritual warfare. The enemy is different. Our weapons are different. But is the call to do battle against the enemy diminished at all? And as I think about individually, in our own hearts, how much are we okay with now? With what we're looking at on the internet, what we get dragged into, how that affects our families, what's going on in our own hearts, who, who really is in control of my time, in my heart, in our homes, in our marriages, in our communities, in our workplaces, or in our nations? How much are we afraid to speak truth How much are we afraid to say no to the enemy's influence in our own lives, but also in the effects that we see around us, whether that is on views on sexuality or money or politics or power or or just, again, like our own individual hearts? How much are we okay with not speaking, not taking a stand? I was just noticing my wife um, was watching the um, a panel discussion between the local candidates for mayor and school board and city council I don't know if it was city council a few of them and it was there was a lot of super controversial direct questions and what really struck me was how much most of the candidates there were some good answers but there was a lot of tiptoeing around the issues there was a lot of hesitancy to just say actually I think this is wrong and this is right and this is what we should be doing because people are so afraid of not getting the votes, but not only that, of being canceled or of, of, you know, being labeled as something that they're not and already that's going on. And I think all of us are afraid that if we say something or if we act according to what we believe and we don't just go along with the culture or whatever is tempting us, we'll be labeled as something that we're not will be canceled, will be lambasted, guess what? Yes. Yes, you will. And that was freeing for me this week to think through that. Oh, you don't want to say this or that because it's, it scares people or they'll misrep- misrepresent or misinterpret or say that you're a bigot or a homophobe or whatever they want to say. You know what? That's okay. That's going to happen. And it's Okay. It's okay. But that doesn't mean that you go all out and bash people over the heads with a kind of religious fundamentalism either. And that's where it's tricky. What's the balance? But the substance of of obedience is all-out warfare. It is not sitting back and waiting for it to come to you. Three, the means of obedience. Yahweh fights for his people. And listen to this. It says, It was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing to do what? To harden their hearts. What does that mean? Well, if you... Investigate that term further, it means that over 400 years of allowing the Amorites to be given over to their own sin and iniquity, it gave them time to be resolute and steadfast in their own ideologies, so that they should come out against Israel in battle, so that they would expose themselves, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses." God fights for the people. He throws the hailstones sometimes. Other times, Israel strikes with the sword. But it says the Lord fought for His people. We are not alone. But notice what it says. He did this so that they would attack His people. Like, He did this so they would be attacked. So they would be drawn out. So they would be exposing themselves so they could be destroyed. That means, like, like, look... If you are persecuted, if you are labeled, if you are named or blacklisted, or you lose your job, or you are canceled, that's part of the plan. That's what he does. He draws out the enemy to attack you so that they will be exposed and destroyed. That's not very comfortable for us. How much are we willing to put up with that? The means of victory. And then four, we get the true enemy. And since we spoke on this um, back when Joshua 6 and the nature of the Anakites and who they are, a spiritual entity whose existence is in utter opposition to the kingdom of God and exists for the exaltation of human might and power, I won't go too much more into that, But that's who, it says, was exterminated from the hill country of Israel and Judah at the end. Our enemy, though, is still the same enemy. It takes a different form. This was a physical manifestation of a spiritual regime that had taken hold in that land. Some of the people defected from that, and that was good. But some didn't. There was still death and destruction. But the spiritual entity and what it stands for still exists today. Ephesians 6, 10-20 is a familiar verse to most Christians and it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His, not ours, His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual enemies require spiritual weapons. So that's why Paul says like the shield of faith or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Revelation talks about When Jesus comes, he's like on a horse and there's a flaming sword, the word of God coming out of his mouth and it's striking down the nations, right? But I feel like we read this passage and we think that spiritual warfare, we hear take your stand and we think that means I can bolster myself up spiritually and sit inside these walls and wait for the battle to come to me. And when it comes, when those darts are flung at me, then I'll be able to take my stand, But there's nothing in here about being offensive or going on the offense, is there? Or is there? As you continue to read, what does Paul continue to say? He says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly Fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. You don't end up in chains by sitting inside your holy huddle. Um, you know, waiting for the battle to come to you, right? What is he declaring fearlessly as he should, as he says I should, pray that I will as I should, declaring the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? The mystery of the gospel is the declaration that Jesus is now king of the nations and that through him, reconciliation of all nations, ethnic groups, tribes, peoples, languages can happen through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. They can all be one. The Gentiles, the nations, are in. Okay, they all come together. This is a bold declaration that is a full frontal attack on the spiritual powers of this world that are dividing and polarizing people according to politics, race, religion, sexual identity, all of those things that are spiritually dividing people and saying, Their camp is the oppressor, therefore oppress them. Therefore get vengeance against them. Racism is evil. Let's label everyone we can a racist oppressor and then become the oppressor and tell them what they must do to suffer because we have suffered. This is what the culture is doing. Fight oppression with oppression. Vengeance against violence. Vengeance only begets more vengeance, more violence, more polarization, more division, more disunity. The cross unites. And the only reason we still have racism today. The only reason we still see racism today or other polarities is because we don't believe it is because we don't believe in the power that actually destroys barriers of hostility, as Paul put it. So this is a full frontal attack. That's the gospel. We are all equally sinners, on the same playing field, guilty as charged, deserving of what Jesus took for us on the cross. No one has a platform to stand on and point the finger at the other. Yet, we are all equally more valuable than we can possibly imagine in God's sight, which is displayed by what Jesus did for us. Those two things in combination destroy enemy powers. The problem with religious fundamentalism isn't fundamentalism, it's the fundamental. If your fundamental is a God who gives up His glorious status to die on the cross at the hands of the people that He's trying to save praying for their forgiveness. If that's your fundamental, that will change the world in a very positive direction. So Joshua He prefigures Jesus in many senses as a perfectly obedient Israelite who follows Yahweh in obedience. And Jesus did the same, the new Joshua, all the way to the cross. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish, devote to destruction, strongholds. The fact that it is not the weapons or the the enemies of this world doesn't mean there aren't enemies or that we have a free pass or that we shouldn't be involved in warfare with the same tenacity and zeal as Joshua Our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds, and that is our calling. We demolish arguments and every pretension, a Greek word that literally means exalted person or body, proud adversary, Amorite. We demolish arguments and every proud adversary That sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we capture, we take captive like Joshua, not every city, but every thought. Every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What kind of tenacity, what kind of zeal takes not every city captive, but every thought captive for Jesus? Tyler shared with me a quote from a worship leader, Jeremy Riddle, who wrote a book. He kind of came out of a big mainstream um, worship industry and was turned off by the commercialism and the egocentrism that was there. And he found a new zeal for the Lord. And this is what he said. And he's thinking about Jesus When Jesus zealously went into the temple and turned over the tables, and it quotes the psalm that says, The zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed me. He says, I have found zeal to be one of the most misunderstood things. Today, if you went around proclaiming to be consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord, you would probably risk being institutionalized. I have noticed that when anyone starts getting zealous, people start getting nervous. If you start talking, acting, and living radically for God, a.k.a. just doing what Jesus commanded, it's amazing how many people immediately seek to caution and temper you. Funny, though, no one seems to warn you about the cost of living apathetically or in half-hearted obedience to his commands. This is unspeakably more costly. The cost of apathy, though comfortable now, is unspeakably more detrimental and costly than being canceled or labeled or looked at weirdly because of radical obedience. In Joshua 10 and 11, Joshua and Israel finally grow in their faith enough that they are firing on all cylinders. They have found their stride, stepping into God's Word, His promises, and His guarantees. And it wouldn't last. But with God's help, they systematically demolished the dark strongholds that held the promised land. Have we met our stride? Do we trust? Or are we like that swimmer, that athlete sort of flopping through the waters and just like, I'm not getting it. Do we fear him who is in the world as one who is greater than he who is in us? The key takeaways that I take from these chapters, one, obedience to God without trusting what he says and who he says we are can never accomplish the intended goal. In other words, obedience without faith doesn't work. But faith without action, obedience, is not faith. Saved by faith, we say. Faith as a mere acquiescence to a set of beliefs is not faith. Because as we talked about in our series on the gospel, the word for faith is actually translated as allegiance. Allegiance to the true king. Obedience without faith can never work. Faith without obedience is not faith. God exalts obedient servants and he demolishes the self exalted. Finally, what does obedience look like? Many things, but it includes capturing, striking, destroying enemy strongholds and powers in this world. God will use your obedience. To draw out his enemies against you, you will be attacked in order to destroy them. So count the cost. Which is more costly? And what does that even look like? I believe it's true that spiritual apathy is more costly than radical obedience. And I have found myself to be far too complacent Sick and tired of all the politics and the bashing and the polarizing. And I like to, I turn it off. And I think that's good. We should turn a lot of things off because it leads us down the wrong paths. But what I want to do, I want to go back to my hometown in Alaska and just get out on a boat on the water and disappear on some island. I just, I seriously daydream about that. And I was so looking forward to a vacation to just get away from everything and not have to think about the world or whatever, you know, or even my own issues, my own struggles or, you know, the hang ups with my parenting or my marriage. It's so much easier to say, like, can't we just relax? Can't we just seek our own little kingdom in our corner and just live how we will and be comfortable there. That's not what God calls us to. And ultimately we can't escape, and he calls us to more. There is an enemy, and it is destroying people, and it's destroying cultures, it's destroying lives, and people are running around with their, like chickens with their heads cut off, following ideologies that look like a solution but end in more destruction And I don't know what it looks like, but we need truth. And we need love. We need the Gospel. So, with no further ado, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to the table that Jesus invites everyone to. Sinner, saint, Jew, Gentile, the nations, to come And receive the gift of forgiveness for all sins, to be exalted with him at the right hand of God, which all came at an incredible cost. And as we come and we measure that cost by looking at what represents his body and his blood given for us, let's think about our cost, the cost of obedience or the cost of apathy. Father, we come to your table now. You invite us here freely to receive you as the king. And your assurance is, you are mine, I've got you. You are inheritor of every spiritual blessing as a beloved son or daughter, the recipient heir of a kingdom. You have nothing to fear, I will fight your battles And I will destroy your enemies and the strongholds that are out to destroy my good, life-giving creation. But do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you step into that trust and follow whatever the cost? And so now, Lord, we receive this gift and I pray that your spirit would move in us so that as a church, we would clip along, lock steady, rock solid, moving in who we are and what we've been called to do as Joshua was. We know that looks different today, and we know that your people have got it wrong all the time. So God, we need you. Help us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: We want to thank you again for joining us today and let you know that we love you and Jesus loves you. And you always have a place here at ACC. If you made a decision for Christ today or you just want to talk with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out. We have a really easy contact form you can fill out on our website or you can call us at 360-293-3729. We would love to talk with you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.